Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Weeds listeners, we want to hear from you. Ask us your policy questions. Maybe you have big questions about healthcare, housing, the economy, or other issues. Or maybe you just want to know more about us and what we're interested in lately. Weeds hosts Herman, Dylan, and I will be answering and discussing your questions during an upcoming episode. Send your questions for the hosts to weeds at vox.com by Wednesday, September 22nd, and we might feature them in next Friday's episode. That's weeds at vox.com. Thanks for listening. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Box Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Today, we're tearing up the script. We're blowing up the format. Uh, we've got four people on the show. Uh, it's myself, joined by ProPublica's Dara Lind, by Herman Lopez, Jerusalem Demsis, uh, coming in from Fox. I've only got two episodes left, so we're doing this. Uh, then uh, on Friday, I'm going to be joined by two New York Times uh, journalists who you may remember, Ezra Klein and, and Sarah Cliff. Uh, but today, we're doing this jam-packed episode, and uh, we're tearing up the, the format a little bit. I think we were so interested in a number of research papers, some new, uh, some uh, a little less recent, that deal with the question of American life expectancy and why it has fallen behind sort of peer wealthy countries and also is distributed more unequally than what you see over there. The United States is quite a bit wealthier than Western Europe, but Americans do not live as long as Europeans um, and particularly lower income Americans don't. And that gap is, as far as we can tell, expanding over time. COVID obviously has not helped life expectancy. But these trends precede COVID. And I guess the easiest way to summarize them is that there isn't like some one single reason that Americans have been dying younger. Does that sound about right to everyone? Yeah. I mean, obviously, if, if, if that were the case, then we wouldn't be having an episode about life expectancy. We would be having an episode on like one weird trick that America could do to fix its life expectancy problem. Doctors hate her. <laughs> 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 yeah, they don't want you to know. It's actually you just have to listen to more podcasts and it's all fixed. But yeah, I mean, I don't know like where to where to start with this. Well, I think context setting a little bit here. I think one of the most astonishing things about this 
And Derek Thompson at The Atlantic had a really good article that folks should go read about one of the studies we're going to talk about today, is not just that there is a lot of inequality in the United States, which I don't think is going to shock a lot of our a lot of our listeners or any Americans at all, but that even the wealthiest Americans have seen life expectancy losses relative to European life expectancy. And in addition to that, you know, I think that sometimes when people think about, you know, America and peer countries, they're like, yeah, like we're somewhat similar to like the UK or France or Austria. But you know, in terms of wealth, like America has like no peer countries, right? Like we have like 30% of total global wealth and like $126 trillion, I think is the last estimate of our total global wealth. And we're paying more for healthcare than like any other country is. And yet our outcomes are like really, really bad here. And so we're looking at these statistics recently. And we're, like, basically what we're finding is that, you know, in the United States, no matter whether you're black or white or rich or poor, you're actually living much less than European countries, which are paying a lot less. And there are a bunch of reasons for this. I'm sure we're going to disaggregate this a little bit, whether it comes from like opioids, whether these deaths of despair, which is something that I know Herman has talked a lot about. But I think the biggest factor here to think about is just that we're paying a lot of money. We have a lot of money and we're living less than other countries. And this is like a relatively recent phenomenon. Like over the 20th century, we saw declines in uh, mortality, especially when you're looking at racial gaps, you're looking at income gaps. But especially since like 2012, 2014, we've seen this massive reversal. So I don't know, Herman, if you want to talk a little bit about deaths of despair here, but I think that's especially relevant. I actually, before we talk about what this is or like like what the causes are here, it's worth, you know, just underlining what they're not. Like another way to phrase the dynamic that Jerusalem just framed is that this is not this isn't about the inevitable trade-offs between a market-based healthcare system and a socialized healthcare system to like broadly oversimplify. You know, the the trope of the average healthcare you can get in a European country is better than the average healthcare you can get in an American country, but the very best healthcare you can get in the US is better than the very best healthcare you can get in Europe. Like these findings don't necessarily demonstrate that that's not True. They demonstrate that as far as life expectancy is concerned, it doesn't matter, which like raises questions about what the purpose of healthcare policy in particular is. And I think arguably, even if, you know, there are definitely bigger questions that I think we'll get into on what like the purpose of policy itself is. But healthcare policy has long been assumed to be about keeping people alive. So that's a worthwhile distinction to draw. Like the corollary to that is this is not a problem about are we spending enough on healthcare? This isn't necessarily a question about our system of healthcare payments at all. It might be a question about other aspects of our healthcare policy, but like it really does go into things that we don't necessarily associate with healthcare policy at all because it is so much it's because it's not easily answered by well we just need to be doing a better job of keeping people alive once they get into hospitals or of allowing people to have the resources to get to hospitals if that's what they need to do one thing that uh really struck out to me is just like the raw numbers for this i mean the black white life expectancy gap gets a lot of attention in the media i think and i think rightfully so and uh, based on the study on NBER, it had like a thousand authors, so I'm not going to try to read all of them. But based on this study on NBER that was covered in The Atlantic, the black-white gap is 3.6 years. The U.S.-Europe gap is six and a half years. Like, if you care about the black-white life expectancy gap, then it stands to reason you should definitely care about the U.S.-Europe gap. 
And to the point about deaths of despair, I think one thing that's interesting in this is the U.S. was actually pretty close to Europe until the 90s, like the through the 80s. And then in 1990, it really started diverging. And that means it precedes the opioid epidemic. It also means that it definitely precedes COVID. And interestingly enough, like one of the things that makes the U.S. unique, it has way more gun violence than Europe. And it also has uh, more murders than Europe. But this gap also has widened as murders have plummeted in the U.S. They also have plummeted in Europe. But like you would think that a big drop in the U.S. in, in murders would produce bigger benefits. And, and that's just not what we're seeing. The, the gap has continued to grow since 1990. All of that is just to say that this is like way more complicated than it might seem at face value. Like the, the explanations you might easily go to, they don't seem to necessarily apply here. And it, it really, I don't know, <laughs> I looked at these numbers and I came out both like really sad and confused as to like what we were looking at here. Because it like even the authors have said that they we don't truly know what's causing all this. And we need to like bring light to this issue to make sure we can figure all of that out. I mean, it's especially weird because both like gun violence and the apparent rise over the last like 18 months or so in homicides have both been treated by a certain segment of the by different segments of the population as like, because this is a literal life or death issue for the people most directly affected, it needs to be at the top of our political agenda or at least much higher on the political agenda. Like there's currently a meta discussion going on among people who care some about criminal justice policy, about whether it is useful to talk about the rise in homicides or whether it's more useful to talk about an overall decline in violent crime. If you think that it's important to talk about gun violence because people could literally die, or if you think it's important to talk about the rise in homicides because people die as a result of homicide and they don't die as a result of like home burglary, then the fact that these are insufficient explanations for this much broader life expectancy problem should force you to reconsider what you're thinking is most important, right? Because this is obviously something that is happening on a much broader scale. And just because it's more complicated doesn't necessarily mean that it's less important to focus on as opposed to things that are like very binary outcome, you know, life or death, but affect a relatively small amount of people. But I also do think, you know, it's it's worth saying because we that there's there's different kinds of causes of death, right? Different things that shorten life expectancy, different things going on. So this is this giant paper. It is, I think, 17 co-authors and it it characterizes everything and you know so one thing that we saw is between 1990 and 2012 the black white life expectancy gap in the united states fell a lot and also the gap between african americans and european life expectancy fell a lot and when you look at the statistical drivers of that right it's african american life expectancy from a low level was increasing very very rapidly and that is a decline in homicides, but it's also a decline in cancer deaths. It's a decline in HIV deaths. And it's a decline in deaths that they say are attributable to the sort of fetal or neonatal period. Um, and so there's there's the homicide piece of that, right? Which is, you know, by definition, it's sort of like, you know, somebody else shoots you. It's, it's externally caused. Uh, but then it's a bunch of non-murder things that are still really attributable to healthcare system quality. Right. That we don't have to rehash the whole thing, but like the quality of healthcare available to African-Americans started to get better. Right. It started to get more comparable to the quality of care available to white Americans. So you had a fall in infant mortality, a fall in sort of neonatal diseases, better cancer screenings, better treatments, stuff like that. 
It doesn't seem to be the case that the post-2012 stallout, post-2012 we see both the stallout in black and white life expectancy improvements, it doesn't seem to be attributable to those kinds of things, right? It's not that the healthcare system forgot how to treat cancer or that our HIV medicines stopped working. There was an increase in homicides, but that is uh, actually outside the 1990 to 2018 window that's under consideration here. So what you're seeing, I don't love the deaths of despair frame because you're looking more broadly at sort of population health getting worse, right? That you have more obesity, you have more drug overdoses, you have more suicides. I mean, it's a lot of different things, but they're not things that are like rush you to the hospital. I mean, to an extent, you know, when people have drug overdoses, we treat them. But like the huge surge in drug overdoses is not, again, that we forgot how to treat drug overdoses. It's that more people were taking more dangerous drugs, right? And we haven't tried. Like, uh, American politics has sporadically paid attention to the opiate crisis, but it has not in general, I think, since the anti-smoking campaign, been considered like a topic on the public agenda to say that we should try to address like population-level health issues. You know, Michael Bloomberg took a stab at banning large sodas somewhere, and there was a big backlash to that. And nobody talks about that kind of thing anymore. I don't know that that particular soda rule, I feel like there are a lot of problems with it, efficacy-wise. But that he was at least, he was trying to start a conversation about paternalistic public health that would be modeled on, we make people wear seatbelts in their cars, we did a lot to get people to stop smoking. He had this idea that large format found sodas were like the key lever to make people eat healthier food. And certainly there's like more levers like that that we could be pulling, but we really aren't now. Like that's not a that's not a live topic. The $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill is like not going to make everybody eat more vegetables. And yet, I mean, I think we know that those things have a big impact on people's life expectancy. And it's one reason why the trends have become, I think, so class stratified is that upscale people, like not me personally, but most of the people I know, do a better job, I think, of like taking care of themselves than a lot of people in the United States do. Well, now that like basic exercise is no longer a thing you get from working in the fields, but a thing that you have to like have leisure time and disposable income for in many cases that like makes a certain amount of blunt material sense. Right. But I mean, also we've had a, I mean, I I don't know, but it's like, I guess it was like Marjorie Taylor Greene was saying, well, instead of making everybody get COVID vaccines, we should have everybody lose weight. But that wasn't like a policy initiative on her part. She's just like, she's a CrossFit enthusiast personally, which actually is like the most probably blue coded thing about her, right? Like her constituents are probably uh, much more overweight than the liberal elites that she's against because, you know, it's like urban areas where people are getting into like fitness fads and things like that. But so we have basically not a policy conversation about something that when you put it that way, it's like, ah, everybody's dying. Like, that sounds really bad. But like, does anybody like does anybody want to open that can of worms? One thing I found striking about this is during the early days of the COVID pandemic, 
one of the common responses you heard in terms of like caring about COVID when COVID deaths still weren't very high is, uh, well, look at how many people die from heart attacks and cancer each each year. And the undertone to that was we shouldn't care about COVID because so many other people are dying of these other things. But like we also don't really seem to care that much about these other things that are killing people, even as they were killing hundreds of thousands. And I th- I've just I've always found that really telling because I think we should take cancer and heart attack deaths extremely seriously and like do something about that from a public health perspective. And I'm not saying we don't do anything at all about that, but it's just not like a big public dialogue about public health in general in the same sense that that we do get about like these emergency issues. Didn't Joe Biden cure cancer, though, or something? He did do his moonshot, but it unfortunately did not cure cancer. So I think we, we still have some work to do there. I mean, I think that the I was actually going to think about that in a different direction, Herman, which is where we are now with the covid pandemic, because we're hitting a point and this is happening at the same time that a large percentage of vaccinated people are like beginning to get really frustrated with the continued duration. And there's a lot of, you know, moralized anger being taken out on people who aren't vaccinated and one of the kind of tropes that we're seeing coming out of this is the idea of people who are who need you know, emergency medical care for non-COVID related things for like emergency surgery for brain tumors or, you know, they are they have heart attacks and they need to get, you know, they they like need to get to somewhere with a defibrillator and they are going to need to to stay and be monitored for a while and there just aren't the ICU beds for them. And so that's really triggering the idea that it's not just about the kind of flatten the curve issue that we were talking about in early 2020, where the idea was unnecessary COVID infections that could lead to hospitalization should be minimized so that we don't overwhelm hospitals with COVID infections. But in fact, if we have too many COVID infections in hospitals, non-COVID issues are not going to be dealt with properly. Like That is opening up a much bigger idea that there is no such thing as an individual health decision on a certain level, because if we're at the point of healthcare rationing, any decision that an individual makes that makes them more likely to end up in a hospital bed is going to make it less likely for someone else to get the medical care that they need. Obviously, that's like super, you know, radical, oversimplistic way to frame it. But we are beginning to see that acknowledgement among people who have been thinking about the COVID pandemic in terms of public health for the last year and a half now that like there really is inevitably a spillover effect to other people of health choices that are usually framed as individual. And it's going to be interesting to see how far that goes. And I think that one of the other lessons coming out of COVID and we're learning right now is that it's kind of hard to do public health policy in a low trust political environment. Like the reason that, you know, we have all these mandates coming out in this way is partially because like a persuasion campaign was impossible at this point when it comes to vaccinations. Like there's been the persuasion campaign. Part of that was millions of people dying. That was part of the persuasion campaign. And yet we still had a lot of people unwilling to take vaccines. And, you know, we have this mandate and I think it's going to, you know, induce a lot of people to decide to go get vaccinated. But you also when you, when you have things like, uh, you know, a, a mandate for a vaccine that's killing a lot of people, that's like one thing. But 
with other types of health mandates that you would want to do, whether it's, you know, with post-neonatal care where you want to make sure that parents and their newborn kids are coming in for a checkup or they have some sort of access to information uh, that they're supposed to training or whatever it is to in- reduce post-neonatal deaths. Um, you know, that kind of thing is like much harder to both get the money to uh, require people to do and also to induce people to say like, this is enough of an emergency that the government can mandate it. So I think like, you know, even if there's this massive success that we see with the uh, current vaccine mandate, it's gonna be really hard to kind of take this sort of energy into other spaces where it feels like less of an emergency, because even in this one, it was wildly controversial to say that maybe people should be not in public if they are refusing to get vaccinated or tested once a week. Let's take a break. And I want to put another idea on the table. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause. Okay, so in the very same tranche of National Bureau of Economic Research papers that this other one came from, we have a new joint from Ann Case and Angus Deaton. Uh, This is the team that has popularized the concept of deaths of despair. Uh, Their new paper, I don't think, breaks a ton of new ground analytically. Uh, They sort of repeat their basic finding that there is a divide based on educational attainment in mortality related to overdoses and suicides. They link this to a rise in subjectively reported pain. But in this paper, they get very... um, Angus Deaton has a Nobel Prize, so I think people make certain affordances for him that a younger economist would not get. He makes some sweeping claim, causal claims that he doesn't provide detailed evidence for, but that I think a lot of people agree with him about, right? So one thing he says in here is... 
For many less educated Americans, the economy and society are no longer providing the basis for a good life. And he says, we examine, quote, the politics of despair, how less educated people have abandoned and been abandoned by the Democratic Party. So in other words, like he's painting a very strong picture here, right, where it's not people got richer than they used to be. So they drive more and they eat more snacks, but they're not so rich and so chill that they have time for a lot of CrossFit. It's like life has become miserable for working class people in a way that wasn't true 30 years ago, which has forced them into these lives of agonizing pain and despair in which, again, like they didn't like decide to vote Republican because they disagreed with Democrats on immigration. They abandoned and have been abandoned by the Democratic Party. And he says, while healthier states once voted Republican in presidential elections, now the least healthy states do. It's this very big sort of macro political thesis that I feel like, I don't know, I I feel like a lot of people sympathize with, including people on both the right and the left, for different reasons, because it paints a sort of populist tableau of certain things. But I don't really think that it's right. I mean, like incomes for working class Americans are not lower than they were in the past. The big growth in inequality happened in the 80s and economic inequality. It hasn't reversed since then, uh, but it hasn't exploded during this period of of divergence. I, I mean, I guess my feeling looking at the international comparisons is that the explosion of the opioid epidemic is really about drug policy in the United States, that there are lots of countries that have, you know, deindustrialization to one degree or another, and it has not like automatically caused people in northern France to become hooked on painkillers. And then when the painkiller supply is cut off to switch to fentanyl, you know, that like the economic trends are, are global. I, I don't I mean, come on, like, you know more about this drug situation than I do. But like, am I off base here? Or is this a more specifically like drugs related issue? No, I, th- I think you're right. And in, in fact, there has been some research on the stats of despair question before. And when you look at where opioid overdose deaths, where drug overdose deaths in general were hit hardest, the economy does like a bunch of economic variables, like from income inequality to just, you know, general prosperity, general poverty rates do not seem to correlate very well with drug overdose deaths within the U.S. What does correlate is how many painkillers were flowing to these places, at least early on during the crisis. Since we've changed since the U.S. has changed to fentanyl more instead of painkillers for for its drug fix, the, the stuff has changed. But in general, yeah, it doesn't really seem to be that it's like the economy driving all this. Like, I've actually talked to Case and Deaton about this before, and the way they've described it is like, well, yeah, sure. We're, we're just saying that the economy like adds fuel to the fire. And like, so does the extra supply of painkillers, and so do other variables, and so on and so on. But honestly, as I've looked at this thesis more and more, I, I just don't really buy this deaths of despair connection in, in general. I mean, over the last year with COVID, you saw this decoupling of suicides and drug overdose deaths. Like drug overdose deaths continue to rise quite quickly in the U.S., but suicides did not, which I think surprised a lot of people. People sur- expected that mental health issues would shoot up. Well, especially because self didn't self-reported depression increase as predicted, but suicides did not. Yeah, so at least at first, the the thing is, is that seemed to level off over time as people kind of got accustomed to being in lockdown and all of that. And 
when you look at that, it's like, okay, like at the very least, you should be asking yourself, maybe there are different things driving these trends, like they can't be connected. And it's just really complicated, the picture. And look, especially when you're looking at the US and Europe gap, like obesity is a big part of that. And like, just because of all the heart issues that causes and all the other health issues that causes. And that's not part of the death of despair narrative. The death of despair narrative is alcohol, drugs, and suicide. And all these things are bad, but like alcohol deaths are not higher in the US than they are in certain parts of Europe. Like their alcohol deaths are a big problem in certain parts of Europe. Drug overdose deaths are higher, but again, they might not be driven by the economy so much as just like poor regulation leading to a flood of painkillers across the country. And then suicides, like, yes, it's a big problem and they definitely have increased over the past few decades, but they don't really seem to be tied based on what happened in the COVID pandemic to all these other issues. So I don't know. I, I think like uh, the death of despair narrative, it's nice to use like as a quick description of like these different types of deaths we're talking about. But I've become increasingly skeptical that can really explain anything useful as we look at life expectancy in the U.S. Yeah. And I think that the deaths of despair thing is is specifically interesting when you think about it in terms of supply rather than like are people just despairing? Because it actually tracks with other things that we already think about um, regarding why Americans mortality is higher. Like it's not that American drivers are necessarily just like worse, like we have higher speed limits and we don't have other options. So people are crashing more uh, for people to take other kinds of public transportation relative to other European cities. You know, we see higher murder rates, not because because Americans are uniquely a bunch more violent than our European counterparts. It's that we have a lot of guns available. And so like those confrontations can turn deadly a lot easier in the United States. And so like thinking about that in terms of the death to despair thing, I mean, it's not as catchy to say it's like deaths of supply, but like that's like feels much more like a reasonable interpretation of the data, especially when, you know, I was I was thinking about this earlier this year when Casey Mulligan, who was Trump's Council of Economic Advisors, he put out this paper that showed that, you know, deaths of despair were higher than COVID deaths, like very early in the pandemic. And like, this is not something that bore out. But what I ended up looking into was that, you know, one of the big reasons that people were seeing an increase in drug overdoses in particular was that there was like this uh, concept of the fentanyl breakthrough. And like, you know, fentanyl was usually just concentrated east of the Mississippi. And then as supply moved west, you saw a bunch of people being able to take advantage or like, I guess, being able to access that kind of drug, which is really deadly. So like, I think that when you start thinking about it from a supply perspective, it really fits into other things we already think about with mortality. And it also makes it much more clear that there is a very clear policy response that could be had in the United States to respond to it. And it makes, I think, a lot of times the onus on the individual a lot less stringent. Like it's not like individual Americans are just like drug abusing, horrible people who are willing to murder each other. It's that, you know, the tools are there. And then when people are in a moment of crisis or any kind of conflict, that stuff becomes a lot more deadly in that moment. I actually would caution us a little bit against focusing too much on drug policy, because I think that that is actually one of the easier, not not just in terms of it's easier to understand, but also because it is easier for the government to continue to make policy in areas where it's already been making policy. And so therefore, it might like focusing too much on drug policy might give us a slightly overinflated sense of how much we can you know, address this using existing policy levers. But I think that it's possible that what Case and Deaton have here is like they've taken a broad 
narrative that might be worth taking that is worth taking seriously because it doesn't have an obvious policy solution. It's worth like thinking with because it doesn't have an obvious policy solution and applied it to this like synthetic deaths of despair category that analytically might be useless. And like, I think it really is worth taking seriously the idea that for certain groups of Americans, plural, who currently have materially the tools to engage in healthier life decisions, they are not doing the utmost to maximize their own life expectancy and that that might be related to broader mental health or spiritual concerns about like their place in the future and their place in society. I think it's definitely worth taking seriously that like there are non-material impacts on health. The problem there is one all of those are going to become questions of what is the government's role in forcing people to make better choices in their own lives. And two, when we're talking about these kind of non-material inputs of like, you know, feeling like you've been left behind by mainstream, you know, by like the elite or by the American mainstream or anything like that, like that always needs to be a much more detailed conversation of who is telling you you should feel that way or like what information are you drawing on to come to that conclusion? And to what extent does that mean that your morale was previously driven by feeling superior to other people? And how do you square, you know, restoring a sense of full self-esteem if the prior sense of self-esteem were like were hierarchically based? I don't think that this is just about like white less educated Americans. I think that it's kind of a like, what do we do generally as as a species that often thinks about society in terms of hierarchy? But I don't think that any of these are questions that economists are equipped to answer. And I think that they're questions that policymakers, you know, I think it's very easy to draw the conclusion that like Derek Thompson does in his Atlantic piece that, you know, once you look at the life expectancy statistics this way, obviously life expectancy is a policy problem and the government needs to make a much bigger effort to maximize it. And like, in general, that sounds like a consistent view of government. But when you look at, you know, when you when you think about, OK, what should the government be doing on the issue of obesity, for example, it devolves very quickly into both these kind of tactical questions of like, what can the government do that will work? And also into these moral questions of when should people be allowed to make their own decisions and when should their subjective well-being be something that the government needs to like accommodate rather than something that it needs to try to change? I think that's a great point. I mean, I, I recently rewatched the uh, 1999 movie uh, The Insider with uh, Al Pacino. And, you know, it, it's about the sort of tobacco politics of the 1990s, which I think is very relevant to consider here, right? Because we know that the reason people uh, smoke less today than they did 30 years ago is that there was a big policy crackdown on cigarette smoking. We also know that smoking is a class stratified habit in the United States of America, and we know that it's quite deadly, right? So had the anti-smoking crackdown never happened, life expectancy would be even lower today. All, all of the trends we've been talking about would be in the same direction, but they'd be more severe, right? And you could sort of put that stuff all on the like deaths of despair pile or the like psychic trauma. But like we know that it's not that we didn't avert those smoking deaths by averting psychic trauma. We got people to not smoke. What's interesting is 
why that came to be seen as something that was acceptable for the government to get into. And I think when you look back on it, right, so one big thing, which is what the movie is about, is the idea that the tobacco company executives were lying. Right. There was this evidence unearthed that like they had been. It's weird when you think about it. It's like, what difference did it make to reveal in the 1990s that the tobacco executives knew that nicotine was addictive? Because like we all knew nicotine was right. It, it wasn't like a genuine secret. They were just BSing. But it was a big deal. Right. Like there was a lot of journalism. There was a lot of litigation. There were congressional hearings. So we officially decided the tobacco executives were bad guys. The other thing is that the health impact of secondhand smoke, while they're really, really small compared to the health impacts of smoking yourself, were the lever by which a lot of anti-smoking policy was enacted, right? The like official reason to like make people stop smoking in bars and restaurants and things like that was that the smokers' smoke would impinge on other people which is a like cognizable uh, framework for making policy. Now, most of the lives that were saved by anti-smoking campaigns were saved through the paternalism mechanism, not through the reduced secondhand smoke. But the secondhand smoke was the lever, right? Whereas like me eating combos does not like meaningfully impact the lives of other people. So it doesn't have that same kind of hook, right? And also, for whatever reason, like the combos executives, I think have like never maintained <laughs> that combos are really good for you or anything like that. So I mean, it's I think always a perversity of the media that it's like, if the truth is out in the open, and it's obvious, it's not considered a big deal, that all this stuff is, is bad for you. And everybody knows that. So it's a tough, like, it's a tough policy fight, right? Every once in a while, Herman uh, will, like, write a piece about how alcohol taxes should be higher. And, like, people really hate that idea, right? Like, people want to people wanna tax billionaires, right? Pe pe people want higher taxes on someone other than them. And they don't want higher taxes on booze. And they certainly don't want higher taxes on junk food. And they don't want these kind of things that... You know, I think it's pretty straightforward to make the case that, like, if we made all the guns vanish and we made everybody cut their drinking in half and stuff like that, like, we could move these life expectancy trends. But, like, most people don't want to do that stuff. I think one thing when we're talking about the paternalism approach, too, is I think it's also worth emphasizing that the U.S. is not doing a lot of the public health stuff that does not really require paternalism in a big way. So just as one example, the U.S. obviously does not have a universal healthcare system, which makes it quite different from these other European countries. And this is a like a massive disadvantage for just basic public health initiatives. So as one example, France in the 90s had a pretty big opioid problem. And what they did was through their healthcare system, they said, okay, doctors, you can now more easily prescribe medications for opioid addiction. And as a result, they saw opioid overdose deaths plummet. But like in the US, if you want to do that, we're talking about like layers that would have to work through. Like, first of all, the, the Biden administration would have to say that you can now prescribe opioid addiction medications more easily. Then like doctors actually have to start doing that. It's not an order by any means. And then on top of that, People have to be insured. They have to actually have access to a doctor and so on and so forth. And like this public health initiative that France basically just flipped a switch and said, like, yeah, start giving more of these medications out. They, they're proven to save lives. It just wouldn't work here. And you see some of that in, in some states. Like I visited some of these states that are like doing innovative things to tackle their opioid crises. And like 
usually what they talk about to me is like, yeah, the Medicaid expansion helped a lot because it let us do this with like drug treatment and all of that. And it's just like a constant challenge that because you do not have a universal healthcare system, you don't have this like basic mechanism to just make sure people are linked to healthcare. I mean, you see this with vaccines too. Like one of the reasons that people are not getting vaccines is they're worried about the cost. Even though these vaccines are free, the government is paying for them. People have such a bad experience with the healthcare system. And with hidden costs in particular, that like the idea of you don't have to pay anything up front doesn't mean anything to people. Right. They, they think that some hidden bill will come out of nowhere, even if they're promised something free. So it is just to say, like, yes, higher alcohol taxes, bigger gun restrictions, all that stuff would help. But like the US isn't even doing some of this like stuff that basically just improves access to these systems that would do a lot to improve life expectancy. And I think that's that's probably a big reason for the gap. And we know that that's actually a big reason that the black-white life expectancy gap dropped so much over the 20th century was that you were seeing black Americans as segregation declined, as access was promoted more relative to what was happening like 1900 in black communities, is that it was just basic access to healthcare services that did the bulk of changing those uh, rates. And like in I think it's particularly when we're talking about uh, Medicaid expansion to include pregnant women and children in the late 20th century, you saw a massive decline in infant mortality rate differentials between black Americans and white Americans. And there's not like some, you know, special sauce there. It's just that like people are able to go to the doctor and the doctor can tell them basic things about, you know, how they are able to take care of themselves that has been accessed by communities that had access to healthcare previously. And so like I think that's like a, a really good point here is that like the very low hanging fruit hasn't even been done, even though I think that like perhaps like the alcohol taxes and the bigger paternalistic stuff is stuff that dominates the conversation. Okay, let, let's take another break and try to sum things up. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
So, you know, I mean, I think it's a great point about Medicaid, right? And we have done, I mean, this is the area where progress has been made, right? I mean, there was progress historically. There was Medicaid expansion uh, thanks to the Obama administration. There's some continued expansion happening in the states because um, the Supreme Court messed things up. The Build Back Better legislation that they're considering in Congress has money in it to, like, there's this thing, there's a Medicaid expansion gap. Uh, Sarah Cliff's going to tell us all about it. But the point is more people would get health care uh, if, if this bill passed. So there's some efforts, I think some real efforts underway to raise the floor of health care provision in the United States. It's partisan, it's contested, but this is like a thing that people are, are working on. Part of what's interesting to me about the original life expectancy paper that we were talking about is that rich Americans have lower life expectancy than rich Europeans. And pretty rich Americans have lower life expectancy than poor Europeans. (laughs) Yeah. And rich Americans are much richer than rich Europeans. You know, because you can say like, well, America's richer than Europe, but there's more inequality. So that's like the like go-to explanation for why we have social problems. But that makes it like all the more weird, right, that the population health indicators are so bad in the United States. Another thing we were thinking about talking about here is there, there was a new paper coming up estimating uh, the impact of air pollution on um, life expectancy globally. It's quite severe, but that's also an indicator that goes the other way. Um, the United States has less air pollution than Europe because we have fewer people. Um, and also they are obsessed with these weird diesel cars where their emission stuff is fake. So there's like something really up, right, that's like goes beyond the kind of obvious, we don't have a national health care system kind of thing here. And it makes me wonder, right? Because it seems like there might be some psychogenic, you know, aspect to it. But also, it doesn't seem like you can attribute it to despair exactly. Oh, wait, another paper that, that came out this week, or at least that I saw this week, was showing that immigrants to the United States have much longer life expectancy than native born people, which means in turn that the it's sort of padding the life expectancy statistics to some extent for for native-born Americans. It also seems to account for certain anomalies. Um, One thing going in the opposite direction, most of the countries with the longest life expectancy in the world are in Asia, uh, but Asian Americans actually have an even higher life expectancy than like Singapore, which is weird. I mean, it's it's not a huge population, but it does underscore that it's not like, you know, flying razor blades or killing everybody here in the United States. Like there are some some subpopulations here that, that are doing well, but it's not totally clear like why that would be. Immigrants, Latinos, Asian Americans, which again, these are partially overlapping groups of people, but just kind of like prosperous native-born Americans seem to be doing worse than you would think. And from that paper, um, they also find that without immigrants and their children, national life expectancy in 2017 would have been reduced to its 2003 levels. So like that's like a giant change. So that's you. You're pulling us all up. Yeah, it's me. I'm going to live longer than everyone on this call. So Herman, too, I guess. Yeah, I deserve some credit here. This is why y'all got brought on as like the new hosts, (laughs) because you'll live forever. (laughs) Yeah, we can live longer. Yeah, exactly. The show the show will never end. We 2100. Um, But I just think that's like pretty absurd. It's like it's like not just the immigrants themselves. It's also 
their kids. Um, I think there's been research that shows that eventually you kind of just have reversion to the mean uh, in the United States once you get past the second generation. But it is this question then is like, you know, what is in the water <laughs> in the United States that is causing this? And it does seem like that research like this indicates that there's some sort of um, like behavioral aspect to this that is relevant because it's not like immigrant populations in general are just much have much higher access to healthcare systems or much higher wealth than the average American. So there is some sort of behavioral stuff that I think, you know, I think the traditional explanations have to do with um, immigrants tend to uh, move to urban environments uh, and to superstar cities that have these kinds of jobs, which means that they're potentially more able to live in like walkable communities and live those kinds of healthier lives. Other It's not accessible to some Americans. And of course, like it's habitual, right? Like you can live in D.C. and just drive everywhere or take Uber everywhere or you can like choose to walk. And <laughs> I think that, that some of that is behavioral in a sense that is that is relevant. But I'm not sure how relevant that is for public policy to just tell everyone to walk everywhere. One thing I think about this and like why this issue isn't being addressed, it's just like Honestly, a lot of it must be that the public and policymakers either don't know about the issue or don't know care about the issue. Um, because I mean, we see this like there's no life expectancy candidate. Like there's candidates running on like really fringy ideas sometimes, like UBI and uh, I mean, I was going to say marijuana legalization, but that's not really a fringy idea anymore. But in general, it's like you see all like candidates come up with like all sorts of weird ideas to resolve their pet issues. But there is no candidate saying like I'm going to make you all live longer, which sounds great. It, like at least no major party candidate that I can think of. And I mean, we see this like throughout Donald Trump's time in office, the life expectancy dropped generally, like a, a, it either stagnated or actually fell. And nobody was up in arms about that in the same way they would be if like the GDP dropped or if unemployment rose, right? Like we care way more about like economic recessions and life expectancy recessions. And some of that, I think, is just, you know, Americans are individualistic. They're like, well, if somebody wants to eat 4,000 hamburgers in a day, that's their choice. But, like, I've just been trying to think of, like, the systemic issues that this is the case. And I, I really do keep coming back to the universal health care because I, I know that when these debates come around, like, during the debates around Obamacare, some there was talk about death panels. There was talk about, like, Nancy Pelosi deciding what you can do and, like, Michael Bloomberg banning your sodas and all that. And, like, you know, a lot of that is bullshit. But to some degree... It is true that if your government is like directly managing healthcare in a much bigger way, they are also going to care about outcomes a bit more. And that to me seems like at least part of the issue where like we have this highly fragmented healthcare system where nobody is really in charge of it all. And at least in some of these other countries, the government plays a big role either in setting healthcare prices or just directly managing the healthcare system. And I imagine that must get policymakers more involved in the process to at least some level. And, you know, maybe I don't know if there are any life expectancy candidates running in, in Denmark, but I assume that in general, it is something that policymakers just care more about over there. I mean, I think that I'm substantially less mystified by the lack of political salience, uh, or at least rather, I'm less mystified by the like lack of life expectancy candidates and like politicians making it a high priority issue, both because elected politicians aren't known for taking things that their constituents weren't voicing to them as problems and saying everyone should be very worried about this. And because like, if you have something where you can address some of the problem with fairly easy lifts, but you can't fix the problem with fairly easy lifts, 
if you say I'm going to improve this, you're keeping your fingers crossed that you're going to improve it enough for your political opponents not to be able to say you didn't solve the problem you said you were going to solve. And that's I mean, like, obviously, that is a big problem for policymaking more generally, that like there's no political upside to saying we are going to moderately ameliorate this very complicated problem. But I also think like the flip side of that is, okay, so if you believe that it really would matter to Americans to fix the life expectancy problem, then like not just why aren't they saying, why isn't anyone saying like, hey, this is a big issue right now, but also even if you assume that they're going to be like expressing it through other means, like even if you kind of take the attitude that I think some elite conservative commentators have taken that like no voter that you survey in a diner is going to say, I'm worried about deaths of despair in my community. What they are going to say is that they're worried that they're being forgotten, that they don't matter anymore, that their idea of America has been lost and that no one is trying to keep it alive. But those, you know, the the elite conservative argument is those two things are the same thing. If you grant that, then theoretically, you shouldn't have those politics gaining strength in Europe. And yet you do. And so I think that there's really a question to be raised about what would it look like for Americans to really care about life expectancy? And when can we take the concerns that people are raising about the direction their country is going and say, oh, these are really concerns about their own health or about like broader life expectancy trends. They're not really concerns about the hot button political issues that they're using to articulate them. I think that a politics of life expectancy in practice would probably look something like the elite conservative deaths of despair narrative, where we have to accommodate the policy preferences of the groups that have declined the most sharply relatively in life expectancy, because that's what those people are articulating as the root of their discontent with where America is going right now. Well, to to put that another way, I mean, I think that all this stuff winds up being racked on the shoals of anti-paternalism, right? That there is a lot of politics of life expectancy if you can frame it as, like, to the extent that you can convince people that immigrants are flooding the country with fentanyl, people are quite fired up about that, right? Or that Black Lives Matter protests have led to an increase in homicides. People are fired up about that. It's a different group of people who are fired up about um, more public sector provision of health insurance. But like people are quite fired up about that, right? I mean, that's like a big hot button political issue. Now, why doesn't policy change, right? I mean, we didn't pass a bill cutting visa caps under Trump because it's hard to pass bills. Uh, We didn't pass a bill creating a universal health care system because it's hard to pass bills. But people are trying to legislate on those subjects. The vaccine mandate discourse to me is very telling because, you know, if you want to be optimistic about like cost benefit analysis of vaccine mandates, I think you could create a really happy story about vaccine mandates, uh, saving tons of lives at minimal cost. Overwhelmingly, that's going to be that vaccine mandates save the lives of the people, the unvaccinated people who are nudged into getting vaccinated. But like the reasoning that is given is that we, the vaxxed majority, particularly the supermajority of the electorate that is vaccinated, need to be protected from the unvaxxed, right? Like that's that's the reason for it. It's why there's this testing opt out, 
right? Because you getting tested doesn't protect you from dying of COVID. It protects me from you breathing on me, right? That's the structure of it. Just like the rationale for anti-smoking campaigns with secondhand smoke, the rationale for mandatory vaccination is externalities. In both cases, it's not false that those externalities are present, but the biggest impact is the direct paternalism impact. But we see that that is not considered legitimate in the American context. It's fascinating to me that there is an exception for seatbelt laws, which, I mean, I was reading in the archives. It was quite controversial. It was a little bit controversial to require automakers to install seatbelts in their cars. But it was very controversial to require people to wear the seatbelts because what fucking business is it of yours whether or not I die in a car accident, right? But that got done. And it's it's interesting that it got done because it's very out of character with American politics. And not just, you know, well, we're individualistic, but like the way we think about a lot of things, right? You would ask, well, like which communities are being burdened by these new taxes on soda, right? These new restrictions. And it is relatively underprivileged communities. It's working class communities, both white and of color. And there is a sense not only of anti-paternalism on the individual level, uh, which I think is stronger on the right, but there's a sense of anti-paternalism on the communal level that's stronger on the left, right, that it would be really inappropriate to say, well, you know, everybody's got to like shape up in some sense. Whereas if we can address these problems by putting tariffs on Korean washing machines or by expanding Medicaid, something like that, like, you know, it's controversial, but there's a conversation about it. And I do think that the European difference is that they have taken a more consistently collectivist approach to some of these kinds of questions, right? And in part because they have national healthcare systems, they just see management of population-level health as like a valid public concern. And, you know, there can be downsides to that. But like there's a reason that France has a much stricter vaccine mandate regime than we do and that they move much faster on it. You know, a certain amount of public health authoritarianism is seen as more acceptable. Although, again, I mean, France is seeing a a certain extent of vocal opposition to that, largely from military affiliated right wing politicians. So to build on on that, though, I mean, like, I think you see this even with. So like one thing I've heard from public health experts since the beginning of COVID is like, look, maybe I'll keep my mask on after the pandemic because I also don't want to get the flu or common cold. Like I've also learned in the past year that, hey, maybe this protects me from those kinds of diseases too. And, you know, I, I don't have very strong opinions on wearing a mask either way. I'm, I'm vaccinated. I feel safe either way. But I also would like to avoid getting the flu. But if you if you just talk to people about this, they find this to be a, like a completely outrageous idea. The idea that they would continue masking up after the pandemic, just going to the grocery store or anything like that just to avoid the flu or a common cold it's that's absurd but like kind of to like what dar was saying earlier one thing you've seen here is this idea that if you overwhelm hospitals it screws everyone not just you but you can look up stories from past years where flu was overwhelming hospital like really like there there have been big flu seasons that overwhelmed hospitals and you know that didn't really cause the public to care a lot it's just it is again i think even when there is some like a potential collectivist framing for caring about this americans are so glued to that individualistic framing that they're not going to do it 
But even then, even when there is an individualistic framing, like with masks, I just want to avoid getting the flu. It seems like we're very good at contriving some reason to like not do that, even when we're talking about just protecting ourselves. I just I just find it very, very strange. And I don't have a full explanation for it. I think it's also funny, too, that the like, you know, the more individualistic approach to healthcare, where you're like, well, people can wear masks and they can get sick. It's not that big of a deal isn't coupled with, well, OK, well, let's just make sure that our healthcare system can actually be supportive of uh, a society where a lot of people are taking risks and are getting sick. So it's not like you have like a conservative movement that's like, OK, like these are individual risks that people are taking and they might get sick. But, you know, if there are collective issues that we need to strengthen our healthcare system to deal with that, it's just kind of like, you know. I guess people are going to die. And that's the situation we're in. Yeah. I mean, this gets into, I think, much broader questions of the kind of tactical stuff that we've avoided discussing, partly because it does vary so much issue area to issue area and there aren't clear answers. But the question of even if you accept that paternalism is a laudable goal, how do you most effectively get there? And like, this is very difficult in an environment where the people who you're trying to reach have a very low level of trust in top-down authorities telling them what's good for them. And, you know, that's a big fat problem that the behavioral economists have been trying to solve for ages and has on the ground, it, it certainly seems only gotten more acute. But, you know, I think that frankly, usually the conversation happens in the in the wrong direction, right? Usually it kind of starts with the question of how do we most effectively do this and can we effectively do this and ignores the broader normative implications of do a lot of people believe that we should be. But if you're going to successfully get to a like life expectancy regime in American policy, you would have to solve both the normative and tactical questions. And, you know, and, and I think there are sort of valid, you know, there's there's the kind of like all purpose Trumpian paranoia about institutions. But I think there's also a more widespread, you know, cynicism about the functioning of the American public sector. I told this story in the weeds before, but I was in Finland over a decade ago and I was talking to people about their school system and someone was describing a reform to their school lunch program to make it healthier. And they said what happened was, was that, you know, the government asked a panel of experts to recommend a high cost, a low cost, and a medium cost version of a healthier school lunch menu for the whole country. I mean, it's a small country, but it was done on a national basis. So the experts deliberated for a year. They came up with their recommendations, and then it was submitted to parliament, and parliament picked the medium cost option, and off they did it. Right. And at least according to my sources there, there was no part of the story where like the frozen pizza lobby, like totally derailed the whole thing. And like that wouldn't happen in the United States. Right. Like no matter what you said, you were going to have a kind of a technical rulemaking process. It, it wouldn't have been one. I remember one thing that people noted around the era of the Big Gulp soda ban in New York, which was that like. Bloomberg did not have a comparable crackdown on wine drinking, right? That like big gulp sodas and, you know, his he would say, I think, look, he was targeting not just a beverage that was problematic, but a beverage that was problematic at large scale in the populations that were having the biggest problems, which is true. It's also true that he was like targeting working class vices and not Manhattan vices, you know, like, which is also true. And either way, I mean, Bloomberg is somebody who you would call a, 
he's often described as a technocrat in the American political context, which is to say he's not super ideological. He puts a lot of stock in kind of paternalism and that kind of thing. But he's not like actually a technocrat. He's the opposite of that. He's a wealthy and successful businessman who got interested in public policy, dropped into electoral politics as an amateur, and is now an influential behind-the-scenes guy on virtue of the fact that he's rich and he's generous with his money. But he's not a technical expert, right? And he doesn't do this stuff through deference to technical experts, although he's interested in what they have to say. But like that's American politics. It's very entrepreneurial, whether it's populist a la Trump or anti-populist a la Bloomberg. It's uh, open to outsiders penetrating it. And it does not involve, I think, anyone really just saying like, well, the bureaucracy can just kind of function and be tasked with its own things. The story, uh, you know, this week is the Biden administration is either the Biden administration is fighting with the FDA or the FDA is fighting with the CDC or like somebody's fighting with somebody. And either way, it's like the system doesn't actually operate on autopilot. Like no stakeholders have that kind of confidence in the institutions of government to make these calls for everyone. Yeah, no, the irreducible complexity of policymaking. Well, that seems like a great place to end Matt's final Tuesday weeds. <laughs> All right, that's good. That's the weeds. Thanks, guys. This has been really fun uh, to join. Uh, thanks to everybody out in the audience for joining us. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Ness Smith-Savadov. We are being joined by a new producer, Sophie Lalonde. Welcome to the team. Uh, it's very exciting. Thanks to everybody who's been been listening all this time. Um, I, will, I will miss you all virtually. Back for one more episode with Ezra and Sarah. So the weeds will be back on Friday. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.